When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And this is the end of the Doctrine and Covenants. Believe it or not, you have survived. You've endured it well. Uh, we began with section one way back in January. And as of last week, we studied section 138, which is the last of our canonized revelations. It's not the last of revelations, believe me. President Nelson seems to be getting them frequently uh, and waking up in the middle of the night and turning over and grabbing the, the notepad off, this, off his end table and jotting down insight and thought and things that, that he needs to bring up with the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve. We live in a day of ongoing revelation, and we're, and we're seeing that. But what we finished last week was the end of the canonized revelations we find in the Doctrine and Covenants. I hope it's been an incredible year of studying it. Uh, it has been for me. I, I think I shared this back when we studied section one. But the day before I started teaching the Doctrine and Covenants for the first time in seminary, 20 plus years ago, I wanted it to be fresh. So I just sat and read it, the whole thing. It took all day long, a quick break for church. Uh, but from section one to 138, I read the whole thing and it felt like time-lapse photography, watching the kingdom of God grow. From its first initial, just a leaf poking out of the soil into this magnificent tree of life that we are plucking fruit from uh, and, and, and feeling the love of God through. It's been an incredible year of study. Now, what we're going to see today with these two official declarations, they're kind of postscripts almost. But the fact they're called official declarations instead of canonized revelations should, cause, should have us pause for a moment and wrestle with that. Like, what, is that, what exactly does that mean? Now, what we're going to study today are earth-shattering revelations. One in 1890 to Wilfred Woodruff ended the practice of plural marriage. That's huge. And the other, I would say even huger, because it affects more of God's children, was a revelation that Spencer W. Kimball received in 1978 about race and the priesthood, extending the blessings of priesthood to all worthy males, regardless of race, color, ethnicity, national origin, and so forth. Uh, that changed the history of not just the church, but of the world on both sides of the veil. Uh, I'm excited to talk about these things. It's going to be a lot of history that we're going to have to wrestle with today. Uh, so, so buckle up for it. But what's interesting is that these were announced in official declarations. And what is being declared officially is the fact that a revelation was received to move the church in these different directions. But what we don't have is the text of the actual revelation. And I want to pause there for a second and, and wrestle with this because to me it's fascinating. What we've studied in the, in the previous 138 revelations are, for the most part, thus saith the Lord kinds of experiences that Joseph Smith received. Now we see some that are different. Uh, 134 was different. Here's the, these things we believe about, about uh, government that Oliver Cowdery writes. 
Uh, we see it different in section 121, for example, where Joseph and the Lord are having this conversation via letter that Joseph sends to the saints, and then it's canonized. Uh, you see this synergy between God and his prophet throughout, throughout Revelation. But what we've gotten used to in the Doctrine and Covenants is, thus saith the Lord, where God is speaking. The Lord introduces himself at the beginning of a revelation. Hearken to him who, and then he introduces himself. We don't see that in the first and second official declarations because the revelations were already received. Now they're just officially declaring them to the world. But what did those revelations look like? Why, why don't we have a text to canonize? And to me, what's fascinating about this is, at least in my case, the revelations I receive are far more confirmation and clarification and direction than simple dictation. We've talked in the past about the difference between revelation by dictation and revelation by depiction where dictation seems to suggest, here's the exact language you need to write down. So Joseph's going to open his mouth and Oliver try to keep up as fast as you can with the pen or Sidney Rigdon or John Whitmer or whomever's going to write, write for you. Uh, here's the language that's coming. As opposed to Revelation by depiction, where here is a sense of something. Here's a kind of a picture worth a thousand words and you're going to have to come up with a thousand words. Good luck with that. Uh, any of you Melchizedek priesthood holders who have given blessings, and any of you brothers or sisters out there who have tried to put into words spiritual experience, you know what it's like to wrestle with revelation by depiction. How do I say this? Now, even beyond that, think of revelation by confirmation, where you're trying to come up with a decision. You're, you're wrestling with the Lord to try to know what is thy will for me or for my family. As my wife and I have had to do that over the years, as we've tried to figure out the direction our family should go, I, I feel Oliver Cowdery's pain. We studied this back in section 8 and section 9, where, the, where they're learning revelation, and the Lord says, come on, Oliver, you took no thought save what was to ask me? You've got homework to do. You've got to come up with a solution, and I will then confirm or not confirm that you are right. So that sometimes revelation, more than language being given you, is a thumbs up or a thumbs down, is a drawing towards the light or a, uh, a sense of a stupor of thought, a kind of a shadow of darkness, like, no, I don't think this is the right way to go. And as we try to, to follow the Lord's direction, as he, well, I'll put it this way. We have seen throughout the Doctrine and Covenants a shift of the center of gravity between a pair of contraries that we have to get better at proving. And the contrary here is inspiration and agency. Remember early on, the Lord's very clear with his inspiration. This is how it has to be. Thus saith the Lord, or I command. But then as time goes on in the Doctrine and Covenants, the, the center starts to shift and the Lord says things more like, it is expedient in me. Well, that still sounds like this is what God wants me to do. Well, it is. But I'm not going to say thus saith or thou shalt. It's like, well, this is expedient in me. This is from my perspective, and yes, I'm omniscient, this is really what needs to happen. But then give it some time and it becomes things like, it is wisdom in me. So that's a little softer than expedient. It's like, well, I think it's a good idea. If it were me doing it on my own, this is what wisdom would, would suggest. Well, keep going and it becomes things like, the power is in you. You're an agent unto yourself. Remember section 58? Or like we see in 82, or excuse me, 80, 
Go north, south, east, west. It mattereth not. Ye cannot go amiss. Wow, we've really shifted from, from inspiration to agency there. It's, it's your call. Now, there's times where it's not just our call, obviously. We want to still do it with the Lord's hand in ours. We want to balance this agency and inspiration. But with the homework God asks of us, as we study things out in our mind, as we come up with preliminary plans and tentative decisions, thinking, God, if it were completely up to me, this is what I'd do. But knowing it's not completely up to me. What is thy will? And seeking that. But since we've done homework, since we've come up with a decision, what kind of revelation are we expecting? Does it have to spell out every detail? Or is it, yes, you chose well. Or, no, rethink that. What's interesting to me about these first and second official declarations is that you see a Wilford Woodruff and then you see a Spencer W. Kimball wrestling with policy and practice and doctrine and revelation and what are we supposed to do? Because we're at a place historically in the church and in the world where hard, hard decisions have to be made. And Heavenly Father, help me know what to do. And not with a, pull out your pen, Spencer, or pull out your pen, Wilford. I'm going to dictate something to you that I need you to write down. Instead, I am going to fill your mind and heart with love and light and reassurance that this is the path that you should go. However you want to explain it to the saints, that's up to you. And we'll see their attempts at that uh, today. But the revelation comes, the confirmation comes. To me, that is no less dramatic, no less uh, directed than what we see in the 138 sections that we've already canonized. To see the Lord guiding his church as a pleading prophet is seeking his will on a decision that has to be made. In some ways, it's not new doctrine that we're learning today. And for us, it's not new doctrine that we're getting from God. It's insight. It's, it's application. It's interpretation. It's explanation. And more than anything, it is confirmation that, that it's true. Or that this decision that you're making, the guidance that you're giving, uh, the, the way you're steering the, the ship of, of the church, the, the good ship Zion, you're headed in the right direction. So move forward with faith. And announce to the world that God has confirmed to you that this is the path that we must follow. And that's what we see in the first and the second official declarations. They really are amazing. And we're going to spend some significant time there today. But before we get there, we get to go on a field trip to the Pearl of Great Price to study uh, doctrine that is found in the Articles of Faith. Now, the Articles of Faith are amazing. These 13 succinct statements, and I'm grateful that they are so succinct. Joseph's was not the first attempt at trying to clarify and put down on paper what we believe. Uh, Oliver Cowdery tried to do one in the mid-1830s. Uh, Joseph Young, Brigham's brother, uh, wrote one that was published in Boston in the later 1830s of these are the things that we believe. Uh, Orson Pratt wrote one on a mission in Scotland in 1840. Uh, Orson Hyde wrote one on his mission in Germany in 1842. I mean, you get all kinds of different versions of people trying to encapsulate, here's the beliefs of the Latter-day Saints. Because believe me, everybody's wondering. 
the faster the church is growing, the bigger it's becoming, the more curious people are. What do those Latter-day Saints believe after all? And so all these different members of the church are trying to explain it as best as they can. Now, the two Orsons were really long-winded. Uh, I, I, <laughs> you know anybody like that? Yeah, uh, I feel Orson's pain. But Orson Pratt and Orson Hyde, their versions of our beliefs were way too long to encapsulate on, on basically a page of the Pearl of Great Price. Uh, very deep and very uh, extensive as far as these are the beliefs and practices of the Latter-day Saints. If you have a long pamphlet, go for it. But what we see in, in the Articles of Faith we have canonized in the Pearl Great Price, it was Joseph's attempt to very briefly and very simply encapsulate the beliefs that, that members of the Church of Jesus Christ of, of Latter-day Saints have. Now, he wrote this in a letter to John Wentworth. It's called the Wentworth Letter. There was a lot more to it than just this. We see the history of the church. We see a lot of other things that he's trying to explain. You see, John Wentworth was the editor of the Chicago Democrat. And since Nauvoo is just about as big as Chicago at the time period, people in Illinois want to know what's going on down in the southwest corner of the state. Uh, now, uh, Joseph Smith responds to Wentworth with this letter with all of these truths about the gospel and these 13 succinct statements of faith. Now, for whatever reason, Wentworth never publishes the letter, but that's okay, we'll publish it ourselves, and we do, uh, in the church's uh, newspaper. But ever since, it has become the simplest description of, of our beliefs, to the point that, that an 11-year-old can memorize it. In fact, I still wish we pushed harder our, our primary kids to do just that. When I was a kid, it was a rite of passage. It's like you can't graduate from primary if you can't get up in sacrament meeting and quote one of the 13 articles of faith by memory. Uh, that, that's good motivation. It's like, wait, if I don't get this, I have to sing in the primary program again? It was cute when I was little, but I'm 12, okay? Uh, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go on to young men and young women. Well, back in the day, it seemed like only two articles of faith ever got quoted. Uh, if you were scared and nervous up front, you'd quote the first because it's so short. And if you were a show-off, you'd quote the 13th because it's the longest. Uh, and we miss a lot in the middle. But I'm hoping that we can go and, memorized or not, that we can understand the powerful truths that the Lord is conveying through these incredible statements of faith. Now, to introduce them, I actually want to bring up one of my favorite pieces of anti-Mormonism, if I can. Uh, buckle up. Uh, it's a political cartoon. And as one who studies anti-Mormonism and anti-religious rhetoric in general, political cartoons are one of the funnest ways to approach the subject. Uh, one of my favorites was Thomas Nast. Uh, that's where we get nasty. It was named after him because he could be that way. But he was probably the greatest uh, political cartoonist of the, of the 19th century, the 1800s. Uh, and, and in Protestant America, the big concerns religiously were Catholicism and Mormonism. One of my favorite political cartoons of his, so creative, was a, a, an alligator and a snapping turtle climbing the U.S. Capitol building, ready to devour the United States of America. And the alligator is Catholicism, uh, complete with, with papal mitre, the, the Pope's hat, that's made to look like the jaws of this crocodile. Very, very creative. Meanwhile, the snapping turtle, that's us. Because what better way to depict the shell of a snapping turtle than the tabernacle roof in Salt Lake City? So there you have Catholicism and Mormonism ascending the capital, ready to take down the United States of America. Yes, Protestant America was very nervous about these two growing faiths. 
uh, and Nast put it pretty, pretty creatively. Well, that's not the one I want to talk about. Just kind of introduce the concept. This other one that I've, I've shown people of other faiths when I've been called upon to explain Mormonism to them. I show them this political cartoon. And it shows Brigham Young not as alligator or snapping turtle, but as octopus. It's a, it's a strange one. But he has all of these tentacles reaching out into American social life and economic life and political life. And, and it's, for, for those that were concerned about this, this so-called theocracy in the American West, it is a fascinating political cartoon. But what I love about it is it suggests all of these appendages that the church has that are reaching into all of these areas. And with that thought, it allows me to bring up one of my favorite quotes from Joseph Smith that has to do with appendages, the, the tentacles of the octopus, so to speak. Now, they, they mention it in a sinister way. Joseph was not describing this sinister at all. But in an article in the Elder's Journal in 1838, Joseph, uh, he's the editor at the time, uh, presents, well, it's a game of 20 questions, really, because there are 20 questions that were commonly asked at the time. And Joseph answers them all. And a game of sorts, because he has some fun with some of the answers. Uh, for example, one of the questions was, do, do Mormons baptize in the name of Joe Smith? And he laughs and he's all, of course not. But even if they did, it would be just as effective as all the other baptisms out in the world uh, that are being performed by the sectarian priests. Uh, I have no authority in my own name. And they don't have any authority either. So a, a Joe Smith baptism would, wouldn't be any worse than anybody else's baptism. But we have authority, and it's baptized in the, in the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and it's, it's different. Uh, or he kind of chuckles when he brings up the question, uh, does, does the Bible give you any license to believe in ongoing revelation? And the answer, kind of tongue-in-cheek, is, well, if it doesn't give us license to it, it certainly didn't tell us that. <laughs> the Bible never says that, it, that revelation is now closed off for good. Anyway, these 20 questions are really fascinating. But the 20th, the very last one, basically calls forth for some articles of faith. It asks the question, what are the fundamental principles of your religion? And Joseph's answer, no tongue-in-cheek needed, he says, the fundamental principle of our religion is the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ. That he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended up into heaven. And then this famous statement, and all other things are only appendages to these which pertain to our religion. Now he goes on and lists a few of them. He says, in connection with these, we believe in the gift of the Holy Ghost, the power of faith. Ooh, there's a, a preview of the fourth article of faith. The enjoyment of the spiritual gifts according to the will of God. Ooh, there's preview of the seventh article of faith. The restoration of the house of Israel, Ooh, preview of the 10th article of faith. And then I love this one. And the final triumph of truth. There's a preview of that great statement about the standard of truth being unfurled and no unhallowed hand will stop the work from progressing. That was in the Wentworth letter too, by the way. And it's all kind of coming together in that letter uh, that Joseph writes later. But go back to Joseph's focal point. Because here he doesn't give them 13 articles of faith. He basically gives them one. So that if you can only pick one, someone asks you, what do you Latter-day Saints believe? Then respond the way Joseph did. In a word, Jesus. What is the core, the, the, the most important part of all that we teach, all that we do, all that we believe? It's what prophets and apostles have taught about Jesus Christ. We are Christians. We believe in him. We try to pattern our lives after him. And everything else, it's just an appendage. 
Now, I bring that up because when people had invited me to explain Mormonism to them, nobody wanted to talk about Jesus. They wanted to talk about plural marriage. They wanted to talk about race and the priesthood. And they wanted to talk about uh, political issues or social or economic. Or they wanted to talk about history or other doctrine or additional scripture. Are you crazy? I, there's so many things. And I, and I just wanted to call it out. I wanted to throw that political cartoon in their face and say, this is what you're asking for, isn't it? Uh, you're so fascinated by what you are concerned about the tentacles of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're not a scary octopus or a scary snapping turtle, just like Catholicism is not a scary crocodile. We're Christians trying our best to follow the example and teachings of Jesus Christ. And if that's the only thing you remember today, then let be, that be the one that sticks. I, I would like for that to be something you remember. I just am afraid that you're going to end up assuming that that's the case. Well, that's better than assuming it isn't but not really doing justice to just how Christian we are striving to be and how based in his doctrine, his truth, his atonement, every other belief is. Because, and I'll even say this for us Latter-day Saints, uh, there is an occupational hazard of having the fullness of the gospel and that's to get caught up in the appendages because they're so awesome. <laughs> Believe me, I've studied other religions and I've never seen cooler appendages than what the Lord has given us. Temple work, uh, redemption of the dead, ongoing revelation, uh, an open canon, prophets and apostles, patriarchal blessings. Uh, it's amazing. And so no wonder when people ask what we believe, we want to talk about all those other things. And no wonder they get caught up in the appendages because we do too. They're awesome. Uh, it's a good problem to, to have, but it's a problem nonetheless if it keeps us from focusing on Jesus. So let's rejoice today in these 13 magnificent articles of faith, but let's not ever detach them from their source of power and light. Remember what Jesus taught on his way to Gethsemane itself, going through the garden surrounded by vegetation. He brings up the fact that he is the true vine and warns his apostles that if you're not connected to me, then you will shrivel. That a dangling doctrine becomes a dead one the moment it is disconnected from Jesus Christ. He is the source of power in everything else that we believe. So please do not lose sight of that. Uh, we don't, don't get lost in the weeds, which is easy to do since these aren't weeds. These are incredible flowers. But there is a tree of life and light and love and that's the Almighty Son of Almighty God. And if we can see these other beliefs as branches, but connect them to the root, which is Jesus Christ, then I think we'll have more power in trying to explain to people these other beautiful things that we believe. And what do we believe? Look at the very first one. We believe in God, the Eternal Father, and in His Son, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost, now, one of my favorite ways to study the Articles of Faith is to tweak them and ruin them, turn them into false doctrine, uh, because by doing so, it clarifies true doctrine. Uh, I'll give you an example. In this first one, imagine if we said instead, we believe in God, colon, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Now, the words are all there. I could reprint the articles, that first article of faith with just a bunch of ellipses, right? A bunch of dots at the bottom to, to let you know I'm getting rid of words. But what have I gotten rid of? I've gotten rid of 
true doctrine about the separate nature of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. I'm grateful for the punctuation marks, those commas that help keep separate these different personages of the Godhead. You see, when I was in divinity school, I remember I was having a conversation with, with a Catholic and she asked me, how do you Latter-day Saints, you guys baptize, right? I'm like, yeah, we do. What, what's it like? And I said, well, unlike you, we baptize by immersion. Uh, and so they have to be old enough to, to know what they're doing, and, and then it's complete submersion in the water, the death of Christ, Romans 6, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then she said, oh, no, no, okay, okay, I understand that. But what language do you use? Uh, what do you say when you're performing that sacrament? We call it an ordinance. They call it a sacrament. Uh, and I said, oh, good question. We say, we call a person by name. This is an individual ordinance. And then we say, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, so there's a statement about our authority. I know authority is hugely important for you Catholics as well, same for us. Uh, so having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. And then we immerse them. And she sat there like in disbelief going, well, so you guys do believe in the Trinity. I totally thought you didn't. And it was really interesting because it was like the fact I mentioned Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, she automatically assumed we were Trinitarian. And it struck me as I tried to explain it to her. I said, well, well what, don't, don't be too fast. <laughs> yes, we believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, but there's a difference. We believe in the members of the Trinity. We just don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And then she sat there confused, like, what's the difference? I said, okay, I'm glad it's confusing enough to stop you in your tracks. You see, the members of the Trinity, we just call it the Godhead, but we believe in them. You see, I've learned that if we just, if somebody says, do you guys believe in the Trinity? And we just say, nope, then they can go away thinking, ah, so Latter-day Saints don't believe in the Father or the Son or the Holy Ghost. That's the danger of leaving them with that impression when we just say, with no explanation, we don't believe in the Trinity. No, the first article of faith would, would clarify that beautifully. We do believe in the members of the Trinity. What we don't believe is the doctrine of the Trinity, which was developed centuries after the New Testament time period as New Testament Christianity was being forced through Greek philosophy. And it came out different on the other side. This is round pegs and square holes or, or vice versa. Uh, you, you can't pass it through and expect it to be the same. And it wasn't as they're trying to force things into, no, there can only be one ontological perfection. There can only be one being that, that encompasses all, all truth, all perfections. There can't be separate. Uh, and so then you're, you're kind of stuck with explaining away a whole lot of New Testament. You see, in the New Testament, there's all kinds of places, in Book of Mormon too, by the way, that says the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one. The question is, what do you mean by that? Are we supposed to take that literally? ontologically is the term, are, we the, are they the same substance, the same being? Or do we mean that symbolically, figuratively? That it's some form of, of unity of purpose and of attributes and of, I mean, the ultimate team, separate players that truly play as one. Now, like I said, even the Book of Mormon speaks of their oneness, but it also shows repeatedly their separateness, as does the New Testament. The baptism of Jesus is the one we typically go to first. Voice of the Father from heaven, Christ there in the Jordan with John. Uh, the, the Holy Ghost descending as a dove. The one, two, three. Or every time Jesus prays, who is he talking to? When he wrestles in Gethsemane over his will versus the Father's will, there's a distinction there. 
Uh, even when he, when the, when the, his enemies say, well, no one's bearing witness, but yourself, you only, you're, you're your own witness. And he says, no, I've got another witness and that's my father in heaven. Well, if they're the same being, then he's just canceled out the law of witnesses where two or three are required. Uh, when he says, I only do the things I've seen my father do. How can that be the same being? Or perhaps the simplest in, uh, John 17. Uh, the great intercessory prayer where Jesus, again, heading to Gethsemane, prays to the Father that his followers might be one in the same way that he and his Father are one. That's the great clarifying statement. If God, if Jesus is praying for their, for his followers' oneness, and it's a Trinitarian ontological oneness, then that's going to be a strange super apostle as they all somehow come together into one being. No. Let them be one in spirit, in purpose, in attribute, just like we are. John 17 is a great place to clarify and, and to see that. Uh, as, as I tried to explain all of this to my, to my Catholic friend, we believe in those personages. We just don't believe in, in what has come to be an explanation of, of how, they, how, they, how they exist. Even, even Christianity will say, well, it's a mystery. We, we, don't, we can't really explain in, in logical terms the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity because it's just a mystery. And for us, it's, well, it's a mystery that's been forced upon us because of Greek philosophy. Uh, and without being able to accept a much more simple and straightforward explanation where you've got some places that say one and some places that suggest separate one of those you're going to have to take literally and the other you're going to have to take figuratively. We just chose opposite. We take their statement of oneness figuratively and the examples of their separateness literally. And Trinitarian Christianity just has done the reverse. He said one, we're going to take that uh, with the, the, the Greek stamp of approval that no, it's oneness in being, in, in, in substance. And somehow we're just going to try to get around the baptism and the intercessory prayer and the law of witnesses and, and all those other things. Okay, uh, Stephen's vision in Acts 7 about Jesus on the right hand of the Father or uh, Revelation, Jesus joining God on his throne. Well, we're going we're gonna to mystify that somehow. And one of the best places I saw it explained was when Elder Holland went to Harvard and spoke to the law school. Uh, and gave them a quick course on Mormonism 101, as he called it back in 2012 when he spoke there. His statement was about as bold as I've ever heard anyone give. And he said this, We are not considered Christian by some. I suppose because we're not 4th century Christians. We're not Athanasian Christians. We're not creedal Christians of the brand that arose hundreds of years after Christ. No, when we speak of restored Christianity, we speak of the church as it was. Not as it became when great councils were called to debate and anguish over what it is they really believed. So, if one means Greek-influenced, council-convening, philosophy-flavored Christianity of post-apostolic times, then we're not that kind of Christian. Peter we know, and Paul we know, but Constantine and Athanasius, Athens and Alexandria, we do not know. Well, actually, we know them. We just don't follow them. I was blown away by the boldness of Elder Holland. He's like, philosophy-flavored council convening post-apostolic Christianity? Nah, we're not that kind. Like, woo, philosophy-flavored. Well, there's no philosophy in verse 1, uh, the, the Articles of Faith. It's, 
It's this separateness. There's commas between each one. We believe in each member, though, and in their unique role within that perfect team of God. And then notice how he's described God, the eternal Father, his Son, Jesus Christ. You see the relationships that are being described there, not just between the two of them, but between the Father and all of us. There are so many titles that God receives in Scripture. But the one he seems to prefer for himself is that one. Eternal Father. I am a child of God is not just a primary song. It's one of the statements of deepest doctrine that we have. That we believe in God as our Father. And as our eternal Father. A relationship that, that spans eternity itself. Hold on to that. And in his Son, Jesus Christ, not just the Son, it's his. There's a relationship there as well. To, to bind us all together into the family of God, I see that in, in that first article of faith. Now, the second is fascinating as well. We believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. Now, you could tweak that in a number of ways to, to bring out the true doctrine by forcing us to grapple with the false. But first, before we do that, let's compare the word sin and the word transgression. There's a lot of overlap there. And sometimes we use them synonymously. And, and the scriptures sometimes do too. We have to be careful in scripture sometimes to tell, are you using a general vague definition or a very specific definition of the term? For example, the word soul is often used in scripture as synonymous with spirit. Just kind of a general vague definition of soul as, as your spirit. But we know from the Doctrine and Covenants that a much more specific technical definition of soul is the union of body and spirit. Together, the two of them form the soul. But you've got to be careful because there's places in Scripture where it just uses it vague and it'll totally mess up the doctrine if you use the specific. Like in, in Abraham when it talks about uh, the premortal pre existence. And it says that God stood among these souls and saw that they were good. And if you take the literal, I mean, the technical version, definition of that term, it's like, wait, wait. He was among souls in premortality, And since souls is body and spirit together, wait, did we have our body in premortality? Whoa. No, you're going to go down off the, off the deep end if you, if you mistake the, the generic for the specific. Okay? Same when it comes to transgression. Often in Scripture, a transgression is just as bad as a sin. Uh, the same kind of thing. But not in this instance. In this one, it's a very technical use of language that Joseph is using, comparing sins to transgressions. And us being condemned for our sins, but not being condemned for Adam's transgression. Now, Elder Oaks is the best on this, since he's got such a, a, a legal mind, okay? And knows the, the nuance of language and so on. And so he has pointed out the difference between sins and transgressions. And sins are something that are just inherently evil. It's wrong even if nobody said it was. It's just inherently wrong. Whereas a transgression, trans means across and gress means to go. So to transgress just means to go across. You cross the line. And there was nothing inherently evil about crossing that line. It's just that there was a rule attached to it that said you shouldn't. And therefore a consequence attached to it if you do. I drive past signs all the time in my car. 
And it's totally fine. There's no consequence. There's nothing inherently evil about passing signs on the road. Unless, of course, it happens to be red and octagonal. But if it is a red octagon and it has and it says STOP on it, and and contrary to what I was taught as a California driver, it doesn't stand for slight, slight tap on pedal. It, it, it's actually a word, and it means to stop. And if you don't do it, if you transgress, go across that line attached to that sign, then there are consequences. What you did was not inherently evil. It's just dangerous based on, on traffic rules. And we're just trying to keep order here. Okay, so Adam and Eve, what you did in the Garden of Eden was not inherently evil. There's just a consequence and you're choosing the consequence when you choose to cross that line. That's all it is. Uh, the book of Moses clarifies it best because when it says, don't eat the fruit because in the day thou eats, uh, eatest of the fruit, thou shalt surely die. He then clarifies, but it is given unto thee. Thou mayest choose for thyself. I'm honoring agency. I just, part of agency is consequence. So I need to clarify the consequence. You all chose to come here when we all shouted for joy in, in the premortal council. But now that mortality's staring you in the face, it's just a, a line to cross away. Who do you still want to do it? You're, you're, you can, but here's the consequence. Now, as Eve had the courage to realize there's no other way, and I need to cross that line if I hope to. I mean, we'll talk about all this next, uh, next year, <laughs> like next month, uh, when we study the fall in, in the Old Testament. But I, I'm courageously choosing the consequence because this step downward is also a step forward. And by transgressing this second commandment, don't eat the fruit if you want to stay here, then I get to move forward and live the first commandment, which was to multiply and replenish the earth. So I'm doing it. I'm transgressing. Honey, will you join me? And Adam, in his wisdom, followed Eve in her courage, and they chose to partake of the fruit. Even when they call it the fall, I always kind of like, oh, that seems accidental. Can we call it the jump instead? The jump of Adam and Eve? Uh, because it's not like they tripped over a root on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. <laughs> it's that they, they decided to cross a line a line into mortality that would bring with it opportunities for growth. Now, opportunities for sin, yeah, that too. But I don't see a whole lot of fallenness on Adam and Eve's part. I, I see that in us. I see it in myself. And that's what brings me back to the beginning of that verse. I will be punished for my own sin, not for Adam's transgression, which actually also ought to tell us something about the consequences of mortal life. Because if we're not punished for Adam's transgression, and yet it's his transgression and Eve's transgression that brought in suffering and sorrow and pain and work and all those other non-sinful consequences of the fall, that should tell me something. That that isn't punishment. If you are suffering through pain or old age or sorrow or all those kinds of, just the aftermath of the jump into mortality, Please know that that is not punishment. It's not punishment for Adam it's, and Eve. It's not punishment for you. It's part of the mortal experience. Going to the gym is not punishment. You're not consigned or condemned to hard labor. You're going to the gym to build muscles. 
and welcome to our preparatory state. I'm grateful to understand that when I go through hard things. I'm not being punished for Adam's transgression. These, the mortal condition is not punishment. It's preparation. And we can be grateful for that. Now, there is punishment mentioned in verse 2, and it needs to be there. See, here's one way I could tweak this verse and ruin it with false doctrine. I could say, oh, we believe that men will not be punished for their own sins, nor for Adam's transgression. Sweet. There's some shallow universalism. There is some cheap grace or sloppy agape. This is my favorite description that evangelical scholars sometimes use out of concern in their own communities. Are we, are we shying away from righteousness in our, in our emphasis on, on grace? Are we shying away from justice by overemphasizing mercy? There's a contrary that we've got to prove too. And so recognizing that that it's not just a, hey, everybody come on in regardless. Remember, that was the priests of Noah. Let's lower the expectation so there's no guilt gap. Well, that, that's not how, how it's supposed to be. We will be punished for our own sins. We're just not going to be punished for Adam's transgression. You see, the rest of the Christian world seems, believes in original sin. What Adam and Eve did was wrong wasn't just a transgression, it was a flat-out sin, it was rebellion, and it, and it passes down to their posterity. So the moment we are born, we are born in sin. Now, we don't believe that. In fact, uh, the words original sin never appear in Scripture, Bible even. The closest that does is original guilt, but guess where that is? It's not in the Old or New Testament. It's in the Proto-Great Price. In Moses chapter 6, it mentions original guilt, but it mentions it only to say we don't believe in it. Uh, the verse says this, The Son of God hath atoned for original guilt, wherein the sins of the parents cannot be answered upon the heads of the children, for they are whole from the foundation of the world. Sounds a little like Moroni 8 or DNC 29 and, and the perspective we should have on little children, that they are saved in Christ, whole in Him, from the foundation of the world. They're not yet at the age of accountability. Nothing counts against them. Okay, So, Original guilt is atoned for through Jesus Christ. Adam and Eve, you're off the hook. But that doesn't take us off the hook as far as our individual sins are concerned. Get that verse straight in our heads. The Son of Man hath atoned for original guilt. But that doesn't mean that he's automatically absolved us of individual guilt. And that's where that, set, that first line of the second article of faith comes in. We will be punished for our own sins. Samuel the Lamanite taught this beautifully. Alma taught this beautifully. As they both wrestled with what they called the second spiritual death. See, when Adam and Eve transgressed, they brought two deaths upon us. Physical, someday we'll die and our body and spirit will separate. But spiritual, we are separate from, both deaths are separations. Spiritual death is a separation from God. But with the resurrection... There's the reversal of physical death. And with judgment, ah, now we're back in the presence of God. And that reverses spiritual death. So with resurrection and judgment, God can then turn to Adam and Eve, our first parents, and say, you're off the hook. Because what you did, courageously, wisely, has now been reversed and all of your posterity is back with me. And with an immortal body. Okay. The question now, though, is as they leave the courtroom, you are brought to the stand. And the question is, what have you done? 
And will you have to now leave God's presence a second time, a second spiritual death, this time because of your choice? Christ hath atoned for original guilt. Have you accepted the fact that he's atoned for individual guilt too? But have you repented of your sins? You see, now we're getting to the third article of faith and even on into the fourth. Because once we've grappled with that second article of faith, we need help. And thankfully that help comes in the third article through the atonement of Christ. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Now that one we can ruin in all kinds of ways too. We could say we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind will be saved and then end it at that. And then we're back to that sloppy agape. We're back to shallow universalism. It's so fascinating. Mom was a Presbyterian. Dad leaned universalism. And talk about opposites where Calvinism was, or Presbyterianism was Calvinist. And it was this idea of predestination that only a select few have been elected for salvation. And don't be mad at God for it because you didn't deserve it anyway. Nobody did. Remember, second article of faith, you're all original sin, original guilt. Uh, and so nobody deserves to be saved. Uh, Calvinism and Presbyterianism was the, the, one of the biggest manifestations of it. TULIP describes their doctrine in kind of an acronym. And T is total depravity. So original sin, that's what the second article of faith is taking on. U is unconditional election. So it has nothing to do with you. So that the, the last part of the third article of faith, obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, doesn't even matter. If you're elected, it's unconditionally, since nobody deserved it anyway. God's just saving a few to prove that he can. L is limited atonement. I mean, the word itself oh, just sounds blasphemous. But a limited atonement, atonement only limited to those few people that were elected to be saved through no... Uh, merit on their own since they're all totally depraved. You see how the, the tulip is growing here? No, the atonement isn't limited. Through it, all mankind may be saved. But then again, the I is the irresistibility of grace. And that means even if you don't want to be saved, you will be if you're one of the few elected. I mean, again, it's unconditional election. And so, of course, it's an irresistible grace. God will drag you into heaven kicking and screaming. Well, no, third article of faith would push back against that one too. It's all mankind may be saved. You see, one extreme is nobody's going to make it. The other is like everybody's going to make it. Uh, and, and where's the agency and accountability in all of that? Well, there isn't. The P, by the way, is perseverance of saints, which just means if you're in, then you're in for good. And DNC 20 says we don't believe in that either. Okay? But it is interesting in, in Joseph's own home, mom's side would read the third article of faith and be a little worried about the all mankind side of things. Like, really? I don't think so. And then dad's side would be more concerned about the, the wait, the may be saved? Wait, there's obedience required? Uh-uh. It's just everybody's in. Okay, God, God is, is good that way. I love that the third article of faith just navigates this narrow channel between Scylla and Charybdis and proves the contrary. That yes, Christ's atonement is extended to all. All mankind. But it doesn't force anyone uh, in or out of heaven. We choose. So choose wisely. Uh, Adam's transgression gives us that choice. Our own transgressions will bring their own consequences. But through the atonement of Jesus Christ, we can be saved. Of course, I will add 
I'm so grateful for the order here because it'd be a more subtle tweaking. But if the third article of faith said that we believe that by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel, all mankind may be saved uh, through the atonement of Christ, because then that forces Jesus to be the afterthought when he's the most important thought. I love that that the third article of faith foregrounds the atonement and then mentions at the end, yes, obedience to laws and ordinances is required as well. Uh, I mean, the way uh, Nephi says it, famous verse that we always quote, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And sometimes we, we, we hold on to that, well, after all we can do, as if it were chronological. I do everything myself, and then Jesus just kind of gives me the nudge over the crest of the hill so I can actually keep going. No, he's there through the whole process. And even after all we can do, when all is said and done, it's still grace that saves you. It is by grace that we are saved. The way Nephi says it and the way his brother Jacob says it back in 2 Nephi 10, there's so many similarities between their two versions. They both talk about after and they both talk about grace. But the way they describe all we can do is reconciling our will to God. And that's why he asks us to do all of these things. That's what the laws and ordinances and and obedience is for, is to retrain our reflexes so that they're righteous. So we stop stiff-arming God. So we can accept the grace that so freely he proffers me. Again, at the end of the day, or at the start of the sentence, it's the atonement of Christ that matters most. Everything else we're doing is just to, to retrain us so that we can accept his salvation. I love what Elder Anderson taught, and Elder Lindsay Robbins taught even before that, that repentance is not the backup plan. It is the plan. It's not there in case we fail. It's there because we will. Uh, we keep trying with those laws and ordinances of the gospel. We're going to get into them in the fourth article, but it, it, it all is based on the atonement of Jesus Christ. Through that, we may be saved. And without it, no amount of obedience to law and ordinance will make a difference. Now, what are those laws and ordinances of the gospel? Well, here's the first few in the fourth article of faith. We believe that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, second, repentance, third, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, fourth, laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost. Beautiful, beautiful passage there. And as you study the gospel of Jesus Christ in its nutshell version, that's what it always boils down to. Uh, 2 Nephi 31, as Nephi says, I'm almost done. I just want to reiterate the doctrine of Christ one last time. And what is it? Faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. And then he adds, endure to the end, which is simply continuing to live with those four for the rest of your life. Throughout the scriptures, those four are reiterated constantly. Now, we could tweak that one and ruin it in all kinds of different ways. We could take out the word first and just say the principles and ordinances of the gospel are, and this is it. No, there's, there's a lot more to go from here. And there's priesthood ordination. We'll get that in the fifth article of faith. There's temple ordinances, which we don't even see in these, uh, in these articles of faith. There is so much more yet to come. But let this be your your launching pad. Let this be the beginning. Again, back to 2 Nephi 31. This is the beginning of the gate. You're starting the path. Keep on going. We could tweak it also if we, if we got rid of immersion for the remission of sins. Uh, it's, we don't just believe in baptism, but we believe in being buried with Christ. That's Romans 6. We believe in being raised with him in newness of life. 
we believe that baptism has to be all in uh, and not just uh, a sprinkling of, of Christian goodness. No, it took my dad and I three times to finally get it right. And at the time I was embarrassed as I looked up and kept seeing the nose from the witnesses. Your feet came up when your head went down, sorry. And as embarrassed as I was as an eight-year-old, looking back, I'm grateful because it forced me to grapple with the immersiveness, the submersion, the completeness of, of discipleship in the kingdom of God. Am I all in to what I'm trying to, to do in following Jesus? And it's for the remission of sins. It's not just to fulfill all righteousness. That was Jesus. He didn't have any sins that were remit. I do. Plenty of them, thanks to the second article of faith. Uh, but through faith and repentance and baptism, I can be remitted, have those sins remitted. And then the, the gift of the Holy Ghost, he didn't just say, and the Holy Ghost. It's a gift. Anyone can feel its influence. And all have the light of Christ. But to receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, the promise of his constant companionship that can only come with ordinances and covenants and priesthood authority, since it's the laying on of hands. There's so much that's hinted at in that fourth article. I will say, though, as I've shared previously with you, I've often asked my students, give me the five most important words in the fourth article of faith. And as they think about it, they'll usually say something like, uh, first principles and ordinances gospel? I said, mm, good summary. There's a better one. And they're like, oh, oh yeah, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost. There's five. And I was like, oh, another great summary. But I didn't ask for a summary. I asked for the five most important words in the fourth article of faith. And as they wrestle with it, finally we realize the most important ones are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because guess what? Everything else is going to be there anyway. There's no escaping the first four principles and ordinances. Because that's how everyone lives their life. Now, follow me through on this. They don't call it faith and they don't call it repentance. But they're choosing something to organize their life around. Some central organizing ism is usually what I call it. And whether that's a religious ism, Catholicism or Protestantism or Calvinism or Judaism, whether that's uh, secularism, or hedonism, or consumerism, or capitalism, or commercialism, or environmentalism, or conservatism, or liberalism. Everybody has an ism. And you can't go through life without one, because that's how you, how you view reality and order your, your life in the universe. And if you haven't chosen your ism as in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you pick something else. But whatever you chose will be the object of your faith. And it will lead to your repentance and baptism and gift of the Holy Ghost. Although we don't use those terms. What do we use instead? Your organizing-ism will lead to a change in behavior. Isn't that what repentance is? Because that's the most important thing for me. If, if commercialism or consumerism is the most important thing in my life, then of course my behavior will change. And I'll just start buying stuff or making money. And that'll be my biggest focus. As a result, then immersion follows. You commit yourself to that lifestyle and you completely immerse yourself in it. Have you noticed people when they get their gym rats, for example, that's their ism. I just exercise. Okay. And they start changing behavior and then pretty soon that's all they want to do. Uh, or they're just trying to make money or they're involved in politics or that it's the environment and all these are good things. But when that's your ism, your one central thing, 
instead of letting those be the appendages, ooh, then repentance follows and immersion and commitment follows that. And then what? Then you just go through life seeking confirmation that what you chose originally was the right thing. There's your gift of the Holy Ghost. There's the confirmation stage. Unless something happens later in life and you realize, I don't know if that was the best choice. We kind of lose interest. We get out of shape or, or whatever it is. And, and our commitment, our confirmation fades. And as a result, so does our commitment. We're no longer quite so immersed in it. And then our repentance, our behavior starts to waver until ultimately that ism is kind of hanging by a thread. We no longer have utmost faith in it. And so we lose it only to replace it with something else. And then the process begins anew. And we change our behavior and immerse ourselves in it and confirm that it was right until that's gone and then back up. And life just goes back and forth, down and up and down and up over the fourth article of faith. Until you decide once and for all that your faith will be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then repentance will naturally follow. As Amulek kept saying, faith unto repentance. I just want to be like him because he's the thing that matters most. And that faith and repentance will lead to baptism. I covenant to follow him. I immerse myself in a life of discipleship. And believe me, the Holy Ghost will always come to confirm that that was the best choice you've ever made. What's the old saying? That if you haven't chosen Jesus, then in the end, it won't really matter what you chose instead of him. That's just, you'll end up living the fourth article of faith regardless. So please choose wisely on that one. Now the fifth article. We believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. Now we can actually change a word here and actually probably improve the article of faith rather than, than, than mess it up. And that's the word man. Since we know much more clearly than we have before that any kind of authority is priesthood authority. And that it is given to God's daughters just as it is given to God's sons. Now, there is a difference between ordination for the performance of ordinances. And that we do have to stay with a man. But when it comes to, and in fact, you see it at the end, to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof, divide those two. And now you can see some gender possibilities. To administer in the ordinances, then yes, a man must be ordained. To an office in the priesthood to be able to perform that. But in terms of preaching the gospel, to share his truth, to perform his work, to function in his name, oh, well, that will, will require authority. And where does that authority come from? I think verse 5 uh, has a lot less to do with gendered differences than it simply has to do with authority from God, some of which requires priesthood ordination, but others simply requires a priesthood setting apart, that you are receiving authority, even if you're not receiving an ordination. Because as we see in, in verse 5, anyone who is preaching the gospel and or administering in ordinances, what's required? They must be called of God. And that calling must come by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority. Now that laying on of hands by those who are in authority, that is ordination as well. So there's that side of priesthood ordination. But as far as priesthood authority is concerned, if you're called of God and it's by prophecy and you've had hands laid upon you to set you apart, 
then you are authorized by, by God to perform work in his name. And that is a beautiful thing. Now, some would go, okay, called of God, prophecy? Ew, how does that work? Well, don't forget the definition of the spirit of prophecy from the book of Revelation. He simply defines it as the testimony of Jesus. Were you called by that? See, I love the thought of my testimony of Jesus being the spirit of prophecy. Can I? We, we always think of prophecy as predicting the future. Well, in a way, can I predict the future? The best possible future? Yes, because of my testimony of Jesus. I can predict forgiveness for sin. I can predict a glorious second coming. I can predict salvation and exaltation for those who follow him. Oh, it's such a gift of prophecy. And I love the thought of, can I accept this calling? Whether it's priesthood ordination or a priesthood setting apart to go perform God's work. Ah, but I'm not good enough or I feel inadequate or I'll never be able to perform it. Wow. In your own, by, on, your, on your own, by yourself, you're probably right. Uh, I hope you feel that way. That anxiety coupled with great faith, that's how Jacob described it, right? Because of faith and great anxiety, great combination, great contrary to prove. But if you have a testimony of Jesus, then your faith will outweigh your great anxiety. And believe me, that's probably what got you called in the first place because those priesthood leaders that were, extent, were pondering and praying about you, oh, they're probably aware of your inadequacies also. But they also have faith in Christ's adequacy. His more than adequacy, his, his superabundant grace, which is sufficient for you, right? Uh, trust in their gift of prophecy, which is not just saying, we know that you'll be good at this. It's, I have a testimony of Jesus and that he will be able to prepare you and magnify you. Whom God calls, he qualifies you. That's a statement of prophecy rooted in our testimony of Jesus Christ. And called of God, that's such a beautiful one too, because you're not just called by your bishop. You're not just called even by the prophet. When you're called on a mission, for example, you are called of God. There's the incredible story of Heber J. Grant when he was president of the church and there was a vacancy in the Quorum of the Twelve. And all the other apostles just assumed they knew who it would be because every time there had been a vacancy up to that point, Heber J. Grant had always suggested the same person. You know, I mean, these, these 14 will come together and discuss who have you met uh, in your service around the church? Who are people that we don't all know, but perhaps you have? The Lord knows them all. But bring up names and let's discuss and let's, let's, let's uh, converse together and counsel. And then we can present it to the Lord. Who would you have called to the Quorum of the Twelve? And a, a young Heber J. Grant, his first time was like, oh, I, I think so-and-so would be really good. Uh, and then others suggested other names, and they counseled and, and prayed. And the prophet was the final uh, voice to say, I, I really feel God's will, it should be this person. And then they vote, and yes, and the calling is extended. Well, over and over, every time there was a, a passing in the quorum, Heber J. Grant, who kept moving chairs, right, <laughs> gaining in seniority, would always mention this same friend. Now, who was an amazing church leader and, and would, would have been an incredible apostle. It wasn't just nepotism. Uh, here's someone I feel strongly about. Well, that happened like 13, 14 times. And finally, Heber J. Grant wasn't the junior apostle. He was the senior apostle. He was president of the church. And everyone's kind of like, well, I guess I'll throw out names, but we know who's gonna, who he's going to pick since he gets the final say. 
And as they suggest names and counsel together and then pray, President Grant knows who needs to be called. And it isn't his friend. It isn't the person he's been suggesting all of these years. As he said later, I've always known this is the Lord's church and not, not any one person's, certainly not mine, even as president of the church. But never was that made more clear to me that when I called someone who was basically a stranger to me to the Quorum of the Twelve, rather than my best lifelong friend, this is the Lord's kingdom and you are called of God by prophecy, by the laying on of hands. Of course you are able now to preach the gospel and or to administer in the ordinances thereof. This is his work. It's his work and his glory. And he wants us to participate in it in beautiful ways. Number six, we believe in the same organization that existed in the primitive church, namely apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. Now that one, we could get rid of the word same, and, and then we're kind of confined to biblical time. Well, we believe in the organization that existed in the primitive church. Yeah, they had apostles. Yeah, they had prophets. Yeah, they had pastors and teachers and evangelists. We don't, but at least they did, and that's good enough. Oh, it's not good enough. We need living prophets and apostles. We need the same organization that existed then to still exist today. And so it does. To see apostles and prophets... By the way, I love that apostles is more of a New Testament position and prophets is more of an Old Testament. At least that's what we're, we're used to. Uh, Jan Ships is a Methodist historian of Mormonism. Uh, she kind of helped put Mormon studies on the map because she's not one of us. And people are like, wow, you take them seriously? Hmm, maybe we should too. And she said, yeah, we all should. This is an incredible faith with amazing history. But she pointed out that where a bunch of other groups were restorationists trying to bring back New Testament Christianity. The restored gospel through Joseph Smith went all the way back and restored Old Testament too. It wasn't just the church. It was the house of Israel. It wasn't just spiritual gifts, which we'll see in seven. It was patriarchal blessings. And we see patriarchs hinted at in six. I'll explain that in a moment. It's not just prophets, Old Testament. It's, it's apostles, New Testament. Uh, and not just, not just church, New Testament, but temples, Old Testament. It's amazing how it all comes together. And for the primitive church throughout all dispensations, to have it all come back in this dispensation of the fullness of times, complete with apostles and prophets. Paul talks about that being the foundation, but don't forget the chief cornerstone is still Jesus. Apostles and prophets to find their bearings to stay square and plumb and true, they have to be based on the chief cornerstone, who is Jesus Christ. Remember, everything else is an appendage. These are awesome appendages, but appendages nonetheless. But apostles and prophets. Now, the next group he mentions are pastors and teachers. And a pastor, we would say, is a bishop. Uh, a teacher, don't just confine yourself to that second group in the Aaronic priesthood, but all of us as teachers. And I love that instead of capital T teachers or capital P pastors, here's lowercase pastors and teachers. Uh, yes, though that's an official role in the priesthood, but can't we all be? In fact, in some ways, if we're keeping them all <laughs> lowercase, can't we all be apostles and prophets too? Moses would say yes. In fact, Moses would say, please, would that all of God's people were prophets and had the Spirit of the Lord upon them. 
An apostle is someone who is sent in the name of God. And there are only the first presidency and quorum of the twelve right now that are capital A apostles in terms of a priesthood office. But aren't they trying to send us all to go do work in God's name? We can all be lowercase a apostles and lowercase p prophets with testimonies of Jesus. And lowercase p pastors, which is a shepherd, yes, that's what a bishop is, but on an individual level, are we shepherds of the flock over whom the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers? That's the way Peter says it. I love that, where it's not even just a formal calling. Just the Holy Ghost has made you an overseer. I have to shepherd them. I have to care for them because I just, I'm called upon by God directly. I feel that, that divine pull that I am my brother's and sister's keeper. And a teacher, can I teach them? Just after conference a couple months ago, I turned to my wife and I said, you know what the church needs more of is chaplains. We need chaplains because as Elder Maxwell has said, this is a real war with real casualties. And I meet casualties all the time that are struggling in their faith or loved ones that are seeing their people that they care about spiritually suffer and die and just want help. I feel called upon as a chaplain frequently. And we just need an army of chaplains for this army of the Lord. And what is, what is a chaplain? It's technically, it's someone with the academic training, but also with the pastoral heart to be able to help. There's my adequacy, but, but to want to help. There's my humanity. And honestly, it hit me when I look at church and realize, whoa, this is all divinity school. We're ministering brothers and sisters. That's our pastoral care. We're giving talks in church. That's our homiletics. We're, we're performing ordinances. There's our liturgics. Uh, we, we're helping run congregations. There's our ecclesiology. It, we have seminary and institute and come follow me and all these things to learn theology and doctrine. It's welcome to life at divinity school. It's just membership in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Why? Because we're all supposed to be pastors and teachers, lowercase. We're all called upon to be chaplains and to learn the things we need to learn so we can be of help, and to have the pastor's heart, the shepherd's soul, of just want to reach out to those people around us that need our help. And then that last one that he mentions, evangelists. I've hinted at patriarchal blessings before. Well, Joseph Smith explained, an evangelist is a patriarch. Which is ironic, though, because patriarch is an Old Testament-sounding word. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the patriarchs. And an evangelist is a New Testament-sounding word. Because evangel, that's just gospel. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I love this combination of the two. God doesn't think so much in terms of old or new. It's just one new and everlasting covenant. And so an evangelist, a patriarch, what is a patriarch doing in pronouncing upon you a patriarchal blessing? It's interesting to think, if I, can, if I refer to myself, if I'm a patriarch, and I'm not, but my dad is, and and a lot of other amazing people I've met that are patriarchs, if they thought of themselves as evangelists, and evangel the evangel is the gospel. So I'm a gospelist. Huh? What does that mean to me? Part of me makes me think, my patriarchal blessing is my own personal gospel. A gospel is the good news. A gospel, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell me the good news of Jesus Christ and walk me through his life, not biographically so much as discipleship. This is what he did uh, as far as building the kingdom of God is concerned. 
And for me, in my own personal gospel, what is my patriarchal blessing telling me to do? This is how I follow Jesus. This is how I build his kingdom. This is who I am. And that's good news because it's how God sees me, not how others see me or how I see myself. I, I, I'm not done with this. I, I still want to wrestle with this more and, and really think, what does it mean to look at my patriarchal blessing as a personal gospel and a patriarch as an evangelist? And then those last three words are important too, and so forth. Yeah, this could be longer. There, there's more offices than just this. Now, seventh, we believe in the gift of tongues, prophecy, revelation, visions, healing, interpretation of tongues, and so forth. Now, it ends with those same three words, which means there's a whole lot more spiritual gifts than, than where these came from. Uh, the fact that in Bible and Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord reiterates it, lets us know just how important it is to have an expansive list. So 1 Corinthians 12, or Moroni 10, or Doctrine and Covenants 46. Here are gifts of the Spirit. And any of those could end with, and so forth. There's so many more. But they are gifts from a loving God to children who need them. Not just for themselves, but for everyone else around them. To be a blessing to them. Now the specific list he gives us here, again, just tip of the iceberg. But I love that it starts with gift of tongues and ends with interpretation of tongues. Because those two... Talk about a, a match made in heaven. Sometimes spiritual gifts seem to come in pairs. And if one has the gift of tongues and the other has the gift of interpretation of tongues, you're going to understand each other well. If one has the, gift, the faith to heal and the other has the faith to be healed, well, prepare for a miracle when those two find each other. Uh, in the middle there, prophecy and revelation. The spirit of prophecy, testimony of Jesus. Revelation, having the Holy Ghost with us, of course he's going to reveal truth. Visions, we talked about that with the first vision, or last week in section 137, the, the difficulty of putting into terms what a visionary experience is like. But do we believe in them? We do. Healing, oh, there's again faith on both sides of that. It's incredible the spiritual gifts God has given us. That is one of the signs of the true church, that these things are still happening. Because as Mormon says at the end of Moroni, if they're not happening, it's because of lack of faith. Because God is the same God. Yesterday, today, and forever. If we believe in the same organization in number six, we also believe in the same oh, eruption of spiritual power. In, in number seven, they draw near me with their lips. Their hearts are far from me. That was the problem that brought on the restoration. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. And power, I mean, there's some forms in six, but there's powers in seven. And we believe in those powers. And more than believe in them. Remember section 46? To seek them earnestly. Or as Paul puts in 1 Corinthians 12, to covet them. Wow. He just gave us permission to break one of the Ten Commandments. You don't get to pick which one. It's only the tenth. You're only allowed to covet. And you can't, uh, you, and you're very specific. You're only allowed to covet other people's spiritual gifts. Why? Because they're not meant for you. They're meant for everybody else. So by coveting the so forth, or all these other gifts that the Lord is offering, it's just a more used would I be kind of prayer. Please help me be more useful with my gift of tongues. Help me help, me help people Find Jesus through my gift of prophecy, my testimony of him. Help me help them see who they really are as I reveal through the gift of revelation 
help them see through my gift of visions or help them feel whole through my gift of healing. Help them feel understood as I develop the gift of interpretation of tongues. Oh, more used would I be? And so forth. Don't just believe in it. Seek it. Covet it. Become more like Christ. Now, the eighth article of faith is one of my favorites. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly. We also believe the Book of Mormon to be the Word of God. Now, cut that one in half and pick either side and you've ruined it. Uh, if you're not a member of the church, you might stick with just the first half. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God. Period. Exclamation point. That's it. Clo case closed because canon closed. Uh, and, he, and God cannot speak another word. Well, 2 Nephi 29 would push back against that and say, Oh, careful. There's more nations than one. God's the same God and He always speaks. How did He start the Doctrine and Covenants? Hearken. Unmuzzle me after 1800 years. I can speak and I will. But also, it's what I call the Benson backlash, which was never President Benson's <laughs> hope or intention. It's that sometimes we do the reverse. Instead of saying a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, we end up saying, oh, a Book of Mormon, a Book of Mormon. I have a Book of Mormon. I don't need a Bible. Well, next year and the year after to the contrary, since we'll be spending two years on the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, we believe the Book of Mormon as Latter-day Saints, but we also believe the Bible to be the Word of God. And I treasure the Bible, just as I treasure the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. The fact that God will speak to us, that He will reveal His Word to us, is such a blessing. And I never want to tell God that I have enough, because then I'll lose what I have. Now, there is that caveat on the first half. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God, as far as it is translated correctly. Now, that's a tricky one, too, because we just assume, oh, poor translation. And that's possible. Uh, Joseph Smith himself talked about three possible problems uh, that can lead to the loss of plain and precious parts. One is ignorant translators. And that's nobody's fault. It's just, I don't know a good word for that. I've been guilty of ignorant translation a lot. Sorry, all you Puerto Ricans that I've met, uh, or Spanish speakers in general. Um, the other one was careless transcribers. And again, that's nobody's fault. If you've ever tried to copy something and you skip a word, or you're turning a page and two get stuck together, that's just careless transcription, writing, copying. The third one is where culpability enters the game. And Joseph said, and corrupt and designing priests. Uh, and that might mean more than just religionists. Uh, there, are, there are priests out there that have nothing to do with religion. Uh, and they are designing and corrupt and trying to corrupt scripture. Okay. And that can get in the way. But with discoveries like the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, that have pushed back our earliest manuscripts, we, we realize more and more, wow, the Bible really is translated incredibly well. Uh, and our transcriptions and our translations, and there's lots of possible translations out there. And you, you can find benefit to help clarify things from, from throughout uh, the possibilities. It makes me wonder, though, about the word translation. Uh, and often, translation for Joseph is more of a revelatory experience than some kind of academic, open up the, the unabridged dictionaries, right? Joseph translates scripture all the time, but it's not, it's not necessarily word to word as much as it is heaven to earth. Translated beings we talk about, that has nothing to do with language. It has to do with connecting heaven and earth, changing our, our state, 
and our spirit. And so scripture needs to be translated in order for us people to be translated to God. And it needs to be interpreted. It needs to be implemented. In some ways, we could even add to the Book of Mormon phrase, as far as it is translated correctly. Am I translating the Book of Mormon into my own life the way that I should? Remember that verse from the end of uh, Joseph Smith history? With the Spirit, man, we saw things in the Scripture we never thought possible. We understood their true meaning and intention. Even of the mysterious passages, it just made sense in ways it never had before. The Spirit does that in your Scripture study, if you haven't, if you haven't been able to have, tell already. And, and what I love about the eighth article of faith is that puts some emphasis on me translating Scripture correctly, interpreting it, putting it into my life, implementing these truths. A man will draw nearer to God by abiding by its precepts, Joseph said. That, that's what we're after. And the Book of Mormon will help us do that better than any other book because it's the most correct. But the Bible... Oh, what a source of light and truth. I'm so excited for next year to dig into it uh, and hope to translate it correctly into the way that I live. By the way, one other last thought. It does say it's the word singular of God. It uses that twice in, in number eight. Not necessarily the words plural of God. In terms of some specific, remember, revelation by depiction, not just revelation by dictation, human fingerprints and divine fingerprints all over the standard works. As God communicates the ineffable to someone who then has to put it on the page. That's hard. Uh, we'll, we'll see more of that with, with what we study in the two official declarations. We are not scriptural inerrantists where every jot and tittle is exactly how it was supposed to be. Uh, and the Book of Mormon, even as the most correct of any book, admits that at the end of the title page and elsewhere in Scripture where it just, if there's mistakes, are the mistakes of men. We're doing the best that we can translating truth. You're welcome to do some translation as well, since Scripture is supposed to be a catalyst for my revelation, not just a catalog of someone else's. By the way, we stop here in number eight with Bible and Book of Mormon. I kind of wish that there was and so forth at the end of this one too. Because we do believe the Doctrine and Covenants to be the Word of God. We do believe the, the Pearl of Great Price to be the Word of God. And if we take 2 Nephi 29 seriously about records for all nations, records specifically of the lost tribes, but even more generically, all of God's children around the earth, what has He taught them? What books might someday be forthcoming? Or perhaps what books have already come that are infused with inspiration and spirit. You see, in, in those other versions of the Articles of Faith that Orson Pratt or Orson Hyde or, or Oliver Cowdery or Joseph Young wrote, one of my favorite little additions is something from Orson Hyde's version. Similar to the Eighth Article of Faith, he wrote, we believe the Word of God recorded in the Bible. We also believe the Word of God recorded in the Book of Mormon. And then this, and in all other good books. Remember, as they dedicated the Kirtland Temple, they were told to seek wisdom out of the best books? Well, that's even beyond the canon we have before us. Wow, beautiful, expansive truth. Speaking of expansive, number nine is my favorite article of faith. We believe all that God has revealed. 
all that he does now reveal. And we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Now, the easiest way to ruin that one is just to cut it short and put a period where the very first comma belongs. We believe all that God has revealed, period. And like I said before, close case, close canon, we're done. No, we're not. We believe, and, no, and notice all, we believe all. It's not just that we believe he's revealed. It's we believe all of it, even the hard sayings. Remember when Jesus says that as the people are leaving him in droves? Will you also leave me over these hard sayings? That's what they said during their departure. These are hard sayings. Who can hear them? Oh, you only came for the easy stuff. Mm, nah, that's not us. We don't just believe the, 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 the soft, gentle doctrines that Jesus has taught, the, the bumper sticker kind. We believe in the hard ones because we believe all that he has revealed. We also believe all that he does now reveal, which can include some difficult doctrines and some hard sayings. But best of all, we also believe he will yet reveal. And not just some kind of gospel trivia, but rather great and important things, which should let us know that we should have questions still, because some of those great and important things haven't yet been revealed. I don't see a, uh, an expiration date at the end of number nine. So we're still living into the restoration. President Nelson has said it repeatedly. It's ongoing. And the, as long as he has his little notepad on the nightstand, then great and important things will still be forthcoming. I've shared this repeatedly through our two years of Come Follow Me so far. But what I love about the Ninth Article of Faith is that it shows Sister Kimball and the rest of us that there's not just one shelf with questions that we have, but three shelves of revelations to receive. Remember Sister Kimball's analogy? That when she had a question she couldn't answer, she'd put it in a metaphorical box and put the box on a metaphorical shelf and just kind of leave it there so she could go on living. Uh, people of other, I mean, ex-Latter-day Saints hate that analogy because they, they think it's a cop-out. They think it's an ostrich with its head in the sand. Like, oh, yep, there's, a, there's those Latter-day Saints who can't handle ambiguity or difficulty, so they just ignore it all the time. Well, first of all, they don't know Sister Kimball, whose maiden name was Irene, as in that Irene family, the really smart one of scientists and academics. Camilla Irene Kimball was so smart, such a critical thinker. But she knew that there were some things she couldn't answer. And so rather than let today's question marks hold hostage yesterday's exclamation points, she simply put that question on her shelf so she could go on living. But she didn't leave it there permanently. As time would go on, she would take down the box off the shelf, look at, look, open it up and see, oh, I actually know this now. This one's been clarified. This one's been revealed. This I understand. It doesn't need to be in the box anymore. This one, ooh, yeah, okay, that one's still in there. Put the lid on and put it on the shelf. But the, the day the Spirit whispered to me as I was wrestling with Sister Kimball's analogy, based on the complaints I was reading from people who had left the church, the Spirit whispered to me, there's more than one shelf. Sister Kimball was talking about shelf number three. And the ninth article of faith defines what the three shelves are. Revelation past is shelf number one. Revelation present is shelf number two. And revelation future that's the one Sister Kimball's talking about, is shelf number three. Of course there's going to be questions. There's great important things yet to be revealed. But as long as I see them as revelations yet to come, then they don't 
they don't destroy me or paralyze me with unanswerable questions. See, that's the problem. How do I know that revelation will yet come? Because <laughs> I know it's come in the past, and better yet, I know it's coming right now in the present. I love shelf number one, and I often challenge my students to do a literal inventory of it. I mean, it'd be fun to actually make a, a physical three-shelf book, bookcase or bookshelf, and on number one, put down your, your souvenirs. I would have a copy of my patriarchal blessing. Of course, I'd need a second copy on shelf number two and a third on shelf number three, since that one is a gift that keeps on giving. I would put a leaf from the sacred grove. I would put a bottle of consecrated oil, since I have participated in miracles. I would put my scriptures there, although I'd need those in two and three as well. I would put a white handkerchief from temple dedications that have changed my life. I would put my, my wedding pictures, because that was more than just a, a wedding. That was a revelation of who I am and who my wife really is and who God wants us to become. I would have a packed shelf number one. And most importantly, I would dust it off frequently. But as much as I love shelf one, my favorite is shelf two, honestly, because it's what God is revealing to me right now. What gospel doctrine are you, are you wrestling with? What insights are you gaining in your scripture study? What new insight did you gain the, when you went to the temple and sat in the endowment again and opened your mind and heart to learn? It's mind-blowing what happens on shelf number two. It doesn't, the only problem with shelf two is it, it doesn't stay there very long. Because by like the next day, often, it's down to shelf number one. Like, ah, what? The nice thing is, that just makes, makes more room for whatever God wants to bring down from shelf number three. Because he'll do that if he sees that we're in the process of rearranging souvenirs. Uh, that, we're, that we're working with things he gives us and learning and then cherishing and treasuring and, and then making room for more. That's the process of living in Revelation. It's just rearranging shelves. And God brings it down to two, and then we wrestle and learn and, and thrive and then remember. And it just keeps on moving. It's amazing to watch just people work with their shelves. And it's all right there in the ninth article of faith. As I've also shared in one of those visits to another congregation to answer questions about the restored gospel, one lady that was angry about our doctrine of restoration because of what it meant about the, the apostasy, she was mad about that for good reason. Uh, you claiming to be the only true church means that we're, not, what, that we're false. And the need for a restoration suggests the reality of an apostasy, and that's us. And I'm like, okay, okay, hostile <laughs> crowd um, for good reason. What do I say? And so I just reassured her and said, no, 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 no. We're not... We're not saying that you're false. We're just saying that you're incomplete. And then I looked at her face and realized that she didn't like incomplete any more than false. I should have seen that coming. Uh, nobody wants to be told they're incomplete. And so what do I do now? Damage control. I heard myself say to her, and so are we. And then I was the one scrambling. Like, what? no, we're not incomplete. We have the fullness of the gospel. And then again, the Lord brought to my remembrance the ninth article of faith. Oh, careful, Jared. As you, as you proclaim your fullness, there's a fullness of possibilities there. 
it's a fullness as far as the channel through which this additional light and truth will come. But that doesn't mean you have it all. As long as the third part of the ninth article of faith will stand, then you Latter-day Saints are still incomplete too. And that's what I explained to this sister, this woman, just to say, we still are waiting for many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. I would hope that you're open to, to those kinds of things too. I want more. Uh, we have additional scripture, but it's still not a closed canon. We have a foundation of prophets and apostles, but God keeps erecting the superstructure uh, and keeps strengthening past prophets and apostles with present ones. And there will be future ones. That's our biggest difference. We have a shared incompleteness. The difference is that God has restored to the earth the channel through which that additional truth will come. And I love the ninth article of faith. Now the tenth, uh, maybe not so much. Well, now I love it. <laughs> but I never loved it before. I don't think anyone did. Because it's just confusing. The tenth has so many moving parts. I don't think I ever heard any primary graduate quote this one. But there's so much to it. It might just be President Nelson's favorite, to be honest. Uh, because I don't know of any apostle or prophet in this dispensation, except Joseph Smith, probably, who has talked more about the gathering of Israel. So what do we believe in number 10? We believe in the literal gathering of Israel and in the restoration of the 10 tribes, that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon the American continent, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and that the earth will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. Whew, now that's not just a mouthful, that's a heartful. But to take it apart and see each part, we believe in the literal gathering of Israel. More than believe in it, we engage in it. That's what missionary work is. That's what temple work is. When President Nelson keeps talking about gathering Israel on both sides of the veil, that's allowing God to keep his promise. The risk in premortality was if you go and you go with agency, you might not come home. No wonder our knees were knocking and a third of the hosts of heaven followed the adversary. But what was the promise? I covenant with you that I will make it possible for everyone to come home. I will choose a chosen people with the responsibility of going out and spreading the gospel so that everyone else can be chosen along the way. You will be scattered, and not just by Assyria and Babylon, you Old Testament Israelites. You'll be scattered by sin. You'll be scattered by sorrow. But I promise I will gather you. I will spiritually gather you back into the covenant. I will literally gather you into the kingdom of God. There will be an old Jerusalem and there will be a gathering to it. There will be a new Jerusalem and a gathering to that. In fact, when he goes on, we believe in the restoration of the ten tribes. again, And I'm from Ephraim. Many of you probably are too. That's one of the lost tribes. Whoa, we're already being gathered. Okay. That Zion, the new Jerusalem, there's the, the synonym for him. We've got old Jerusalem, we've got new, and we've got Zion below, and as well as Zion from above. Ask Enoch about that one. But notice the verb. We don't just say that Zion, here's a good way to tweak this one, to ruin it. That Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be upon the American continent. Well, yeah, we believe in that too. But better yet, we believe it will be built upon the American continent. Which means we've got some work to do and some sleeves to, to roll up. Uh, we have to build Zion. Now, there will be a Zion brought. That's the city of Enoch descending from heaven. 
But Zion can't be brought until Zion is built. Remember we talked about this in DNC 65. May the kingdom of God go forth. That's Zion built. So that the kingdom of heaven may come. That's Zion brought. That we have to do our part. And God will do his. It is the rainbow meeting in the middle. And, and us looking up from our earthly Zion. And them looking down from their heavenly Zion. And coming together to fall upon one another's necks. And just this embrace of shared, of unity. One heart, one mind, dwelling in righteousness, no poor. Hmm, no wonder that's going to connect heaven and earth. We just have to build it. Notice also that Christ will reign personally upon the earth. Take away personally, and take away literally, and take away built. And all we have is this, oh, this super soft kind of spiritualized, uh, figuralized kumbaya. Seriously. Um, so much of, of religion today, sadly, has been sapped of its supernatural and spiritual power because it's just, it doesn't belong in this enlightenment age. You can't prove resurrection, so it couldn't have happened. It's scientifically impossible. So what were the apostles trying to say when they made up this idea of resurrection? They were probably just saying something like, hey, the spirit of Jesus lives on in us. We're going to keep his church afloat. Or second coming? No, that can't happen. That's scientifically impossible. And so what is the second coming? Oh, it must be that we, on human effort alone, finally pull off social justice and peace on earth. And when we do, we can say, Ah, the spirit of Jesus has returned. The historical Jesus, since that's all there was. Just a, a guy with really, really lofty goals. And we finally reached them. So it's like he's back. Awesome. Well, that is awesome. And we do have work to do. That's the built part. But there's a literal gathering and a personal reign of a truly resurrected Jesus Christ. That he lives not just that he lived, that he will come, not just that he came, that he will reign personally, not just symbolically or metaphorically or figuratively, while the rest of the world is spiritualizing the second coming. We have missionaries mowing the lawn in Adam and Diamond. <laughs> it blows me away every time I think about it, that Christ will reign personally upon the earth, and that the earth this earth that we're on right now will someday be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory. It's interesting that the creation, fall, atonement, story arc of life that we've talked about before, there's the stages of faith, there's the plan of salvation. Well, that's the destiny of the earth. At creation, the, the earth was more Garden of Eden kind of terrestrial state. But then it fell as Adam and Eve fell, jumped. Uh, and there's telestial existence that we've been in ever since. Uh, but what will happen at the millennium when Christ comes to reign personally upon the earth? Then it bumps back up to a millennial terrestrial state. We're kind of back on the elevation of Eden, so to speak. But it doesn't even stop there because this earth then at the end of the millennium to receive its paradisical glory, that's when it becomes the celestial kingdom. The earth goes from terrestrial down to telestial, up to terrestrial in the millennium, and then beyond to the celestial when all is said and done. In some ways, our goal is just to stay here, <laughs> to live 
beyond a telestial life to be able to dwell in a terrestrial millennium and a celestial sphere complete with the presence of God. I look forward to that day of the earth being renewed. I hope we're taking care of it well now in the meantime. It's like otherwise when, when the Lord says, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I always laughed when I pictured, well, no wonder it's the meek that will inherit it because if it just ends up being destroyed by fire and becomes this orbiting charcoal briquette like the rest of Christianity describes, then no wonder only the, earth, the meek will inherit it. They're the only ones that wouldn't complain about the gift. They're like, uh, no, I, I like coal. It, it's, it's great. Uh, no, this earth, renewed, paradisical glory. I will point out one other thing in verse 10. And this is the fact, this isn't a change that I'm suggesting to tweak it. This is actually a change that has taken place to make verse 10 even more beautiful. Because when I was a kid, and I did have to remember, uh, memorize all 13 articles of faith so I could graduate from primary. The 10th one used to say this in the middle, that Zion, the new Jerusalem, will be built upon this, the American continent. That's how Joseph wrote it originally. Because where was he standing when he wrote it? On the American continent. And where was pretty much every Latter-day Saint either living or soon to live as they were literally gathering to Zion to build a new Jerusalem? It was all here on the American continent. And so no wonder it was this. The fact, though, that that's been removed to me is such a glorious hint at the global nature of God's work, that this is a worldwide church. So you wonderful saints, unshaken saints out there that are viewing from Australia or from England or from Europe or from Africa or from Asia, wherever you might be, Quote the 10th article of faith with gusto. But yes, that new Jerusalem will be built on the American continent. But you are building Zion in whatever continent you happen to be living on. That there are global gatherings taking place everywhere. That are every bit as much of, of Zion as Jackson County, Missouri ever will be. Okay, uh, We saw that throughout our history of the Doctrine and Covenants, that there's still a role for Jackson County to play. That Zion will still be built there. Uh, and it's on the American continent, but there's Zions on every continent. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Now, 11 gets a little weird because so far, 10 for 10, we're all about believing things. This one we don't. But the reason it's different to me speaks volumes. Because you want to ruin the 11th article of faith? Then just... Keep a belief there and say that we believe in the privilege of worshiping Almighty God according to the dictates of our own conscience and allow all men the same privilege. Let them worship how, where, or what they may. Now, it's good to believe in that. It's believing in religious freedom for others as well as for ourselves. It's believing in worship. And in fact, talk about great word. How about the word privilege? We don't say, oh, we believe in the duty of worshiping Almighty God. We don't say we believe in the burden of worshiping Almighty God. No, we believe in the privilege of it. Do, you, do we see worship as a privilege? And if we do, then no wonder it's not just we believe in it. It's we claim it. And if Joseph Smith is writing this in 1842, and they've already been through so much persecution through the Missouri period, then no wonder this is more than a belief. This is an action. And it's an action of claiming 
the privilege of worshiping Almighty God? Will we claim that? Will we defend it? Will we live in such a way that we show God that it's a privilege worth fighting for? This is Captain Moroni and the title of liberty. This is engaging in the cause of Christians. And liberty, religious freedoms and claiming them. I, I absolutely love the oddity of verse 11 with that strange verb to start. It's therefore a reason. Not enough to believe it. You got to claim it. But also at the end, allowing all men the same privilege is so beautiful that it's not just for us, it's for everybody else. Because the problem is throughout history, most times when people wanted religious freedom, it's because they were the minority. And as soon as they left and became the majority, then they didn't want it for any other minorities. I mean, that's the, the pilgrims and Puritans, sadly. They were persecuted back in England. And so they come to America and ah, we can finally worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience and force everyone to do the same. No. If you're a Roger Williams, no, get out of here and go to what they called the sewer of New England, namely Rhode Island. I've been to Rhode Island. I love Rhode Island. Okay. <laughs> but back in those days, it was considered less than because no, you're not, you're not good enough to stay in this Bible commonwealth of Massachusetts Bay. Sadly, that's been the case throughout history where I only wanted religious freedom for me. And so I'm so grateful that this article of faith doesn't have a period after conscience. Because worshiping God according to the dictates of our conscience is a gift that we claim and ought to offer so that everyone else can claim it too. When Joseph Smith was running for president in 1844, he, he talked about that. I, I hope I've proven that I'm not just willing to die for the religious liberty of a Latter-day Saint, but for a Baptist or a Presbyterian or anyone else. Let them worship how or where or what they may. That is religious liberty at its finest. Now verse 12, we're back to belief. We believe in being subject to kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates, in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law. Now, we talked about this a little bit when we studied the section 134, the 12 articles of faith about the 12th article of faith. I, I love how diverse it is. If we're allowing for diversity of religion in 11, we're also allowing for diversity of politics in 12. Because it's not just we believe in being subject to presidents. I mean, if you have a king or a ruler or a magistrate, whatever form, we believe in being subject to them. And notice it's believe in being subject. We didn't just say, we believe in kings, presidents, rulers, and magistrates. It's like, yeah, we're, we're glad they're out there for some people. No, we believe in being subject to them. In fact, we don't just say, and in the law. <laughs> we don't just believe in the law. We believe in obeying it. And not just obeying it, honoring it and sustaining it. This can't just be a begrudging oh, compliance. Yes, I will obey the law, but I will honor it because it is one of the foundation stones of civil society. More than obey it and honor it, I'll even sustain it, which as we sustain people in church, it's like I will help you perform your calling. Are we sustaining the law and upholding it, trying to help other people see its value? Or are we allowing society to descend into some kind of anarchy or chaos or, or relativism? On the one hand, 
tyranny is an extreme that must be avoided. But if we simply overcorrect it, is anarchy much better? Here's a contrary that needs to be proven in the political realm. And it's between order and freedom, between community and individuality, avoiding the extremes of tyranny and anarchy all at the same time. The Twelfth Article of Faith is important for us to grapple with, especially at times when it may be difficult to honor or sustain people. Can we still honor and sustain position and principle? And can we still uphold the law? Then finally, the 13th Article of Faith, which is such a beautiful summary in some ways of all that's gone before. As a capstone for this, uh, you couldn't ask for a better one. Let me, let me ruin it first, and then we'll, we'll redeem it in a moment. What if it just said this? We believe in honesty, truth, chastity, benevolence, virtue, and in good to all men. You see what I just did to ruin that article of faith? I, I, it is so impotent in that ver version because all it is is believing in nouns instead of turning them into verbs and doing something. Uh, I, can believe, I can believe in honesty. In fact, I'm really grateful for honest people. Uh, they're easier to take advantage of. No, I believe in being honest myself. That's one of the most important words to me in, in the 13th article of faith, being becoming, changing our very nature through the atonement of Jesus Christ and becoming someone like him. What manner of men and women ought ye to be? He asked the Nephites, even as I am. Number 13 is so beautiful in terms of changing us and not just ticking off or giving pain lip service to, to positive attributes, but honestly striving to become like Jesus. Now, I find at the beginning there, in those, there's six things that are listed. And if you, if you were to draw a line down the middle and force them to go into pairs, I think there's a really interesting insight there that has to do with outward behavior as opposed to inward attitude and attribute. Again, we're trying to become something here, right? And often that involves doing something on the outside as a reflection of who we've become on the inside, or even vice versa, doing it as it's trying to remake us and develop righteous reflexes. So how about these four pairs? Put honesty with what? Truth. Put chastity with what? Virtue. Put doing good with what? Well, benevolence. But then as you kind of see these pairs form up, because it, honest and true, there seem to be some that, that's synonymous. Chaste and virtuous, yeah, same thing. Benevolent and doing good. But, but if you think about it, I think there really is this outward and inward. To behave honestly, why? Because you are true. To the core, it's who you are. To act in a chaste manner, why? Because I am virtuous, remade in the image of Christ. Or when it talks about doing good, why would you do good on the outside? Because inwardly, I am a person of benevolence. Even the word itself, benevolence, benevoluntad in Spanish. Bene is, there's the Latin for good. And volent is the, is the Latin root for will. 
So it's goodwill. I do good because I have goodwill. I do something on the outside because of what I am on the inside. And, and I think the more we can pair those up and realize that I'm, I'm working on the outward because of what I'm becoming on the inward, then we will be honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and do good to all men. He goes on, indeed we may say, here's another way to ruin it, indeed we may say the admonition of Paul. Oh yeah, quote it whenever you'd like. No need to actually live it. No, don't emasculate the verse that way. Uh, don't rob it of its power or its action. Indeed, we may say that we follow the admonition of Paul. Now, what is that admonition? That big dash there after Paul suggests this is what it is. And it's going to be Joseph's paraphrase of Paul's admonition that he gave to the Philippian saints. He said, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Now that is a beautiful admonition of Paul. But I like Joseph's version of it even better. Because where Paul just says, yeah, you should think about that. <laughs> Here it's, you should become all that. Don't just think about it. Faith without works is dead. Become these things. So how does Joseph phrase it? We believe all things. Now, that's all true things. We're not gullible, okay? We don't just fall for everything. But we believe all truth. We're not I don't, playing religion like it's a buffet. It's not a trip to Chakarama and deciding, oh, I like that. Ooh, yeah, no, no thanks. No, I, I believe all things. It goes back to what we saw in 9. All that God has revealed. All he now reveals. I'll take it all. Hard sayings included. We believe all things. We hope all things. And that too is hope in Christ. What is it we shall hope for, Mormon asks? We shall have hope through the atonement of Christ and through his resurrection to be raised immortal. We hope for that. The ultimate hopes, they're all promised us in Christ. We have endured many things. And by then, the saints could definitely say that. I'm amazed they could also say the next and hope to be able to endure all things. Now notice the hope to be able to. He didn't say, and hope to endure all things. No, you don't have to pray for those kinds of tribulations. They're going to come one way or another. Just pray that you'll be able to handle them. To be able to. You don't have to pray to endure all things. I, there's a lot of things I don't want to have to endure. If God in his infinite wisdom decides that that would be best for me, then hopefully I can be submissive and accept. And through it all, still believe and still hope so that I can endure. And then that last line, which parallels so beautifully uh, Paul's language, but has a stronger verb than think about it. If there is anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. It's something we're, we're seeking after. We're, we're coveting earnestly the best gifts. We're seeking words of wisdom out of the best books, even the non-canonized ones. We are seeking and searching for additional truth that God will reveal line upon line, including great and important things. We will seek religious freedom for us and for others and lay claim to it, even when it's contested. If it's virtuous or lovely, if it's good report, if it's praiseworthy, then it's part of the kingdom of God. 
nothing that lives up to those adjectives is outside the embrace of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, talk about leaving our 13 articles of faith with a, a grand and so forth. This is just the beginning. And there is so much more that God is wanting us to find and cherish. I, I'm so grateful for the articles of faith. I, I will say this as we, as we leave them and then move forward into some difficult history. If we could actually live as if we believed these things, everything would change. Do you remember King Benjamin's address when he said, and if ye believe these things, see that ye do them. I mean, I would add that to the end of the Articles of Faith for you on that page. Do you really believe these things? Then do it. Act like you do. In fact, even, let me say this before we, before we move on. If I were to change one thing about the Articles of Faith, I, I changed all kinds of things in our discussion so far, and it was all meant to ruin them so that the redeemed version uh, just shines a little more brightly. Okay? I, I hope that I haven't uh, taught any false doctrine here uh, in introducing some, some ruined versions. But there is a change I would make, and actually have made on my page, that has made the Articles of Faith so much more powerful because they make them so much more personal. And it was going through each one, one by one, and pondering, what is it that is being presented as a belief for the collective Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? You see, these are the articles of faith in things that we collectively believe in. But we, hmm, you can kind of get lost in the royal we sometimes. In some ways, is it a way to have some safe separation that is, it's us. It's like when we say to people, oh, that's against my religion. And it's an easy way to throw the religion under the bus instead of saying, no, that's against my standards and I won't do that. We sometimes hide behind the we. Or just get caught up in the collective. My, my, for me, it came to a point where I pondered each one individually. And when I felt like I could honestly do so, I literally crossed out the word we at the beginning of each of these 13 articles of faith and wrote the word I in its place. Once I did that, I could then cross out the word the in Articles of Faith and write the word my in its place. Or if you don't want to cross anything out because that seems too blasphemous, you can just do a little insertion in between of and faith and put the my there instead. The Articles of my faith. These are things that I personally believe in. And so to you, my friends, I'm grateful that collectively together, and there is a sense of unity, if we can all quote these articles of faith and mean them, that, wow, strength in numbers. We believe in these things? I'm not the only person that wants to, to be honest and true and chaste and benevolent? Oh, wow. I'm not the only one that's going to claim religious freedom. I have, I have backup, and I'll be your backup too. There is power in the collective we, but there is there's something personal about the individual I. And so to you, my friends, I hope that this has not been difficult to detect over the past year of studying the Doctrine and Covenants. And as a capstone to it, to be able to bear witness to you that I believe these things. That personally, I do believe in God, my eternal Father, and in His Son and my Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Ghost, which has become a a treasured companion for me, that I do believe 
that I'll be held responsible for my own sin, which is why I'm trying to trust in the atonement of Jesus Christ, which I believe in with all my heart, so that I may be saved through that atonement and through my obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. I do believe that the first principle of my life is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is why I repent and why my life is so immersed in his teachings and why I want to maintain, to receive, as an active verb, the gift of the Holy Ghost. I do believe in priesthood power and priesthood authority. And I believe in those who hold the keys that have given me the right and the authority to preach the gospel and even to administer in the ordinances thereof. I personally believe not just the church of the Bible, but the church of the, of the restoration. And I believe in apostles and prophets and believe in becoming a pastor and a teacher myself. I believe in spiritual gifts because I've experienced them. Your spiritual gifts as you've blessed my life and seen God in his mercy help me develop spiritual gifts in hope that I can bless you with them. I do believe in the Bible and love it. I believe in the Book of Mormon and love it too. I believe in God, in what God has revealed, all of it, what he now reveals, all of it. I be, and I not just believe, but I anxiously anticipate great and marvelous things being revealed. I do believe in the coming of Jesus Christ in a personal way. And therefore, I want to be personally engaged in literally gathering his people and building his Zion anywhere in the world, including on the American continent. I believe and claim that worshiping God is a privilege that I never want to give up or let go of. I believe in being subject to kings, presidents, and rulers. I, I need to be better at honoring, obeying, and sustaining the speed limit. Uh, but I... But I'm grateful for a, a house of order and governments upon the earth that are rooted in agency and accountability. Perhaps most importantly of all, I believe in becoming someone like Jesus. I'm so far away from it. So I'm still in the fourth article of faith too, still repenting. But I believe in becoming and in being all of those things. I testify of God and Jesus. I testify of the prophet Joseph Smith. I testify that these articles are worth accepting as your own. And I bear that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.